Party? There we go. There's my mic. Welcome to the after party, everyone. How are you? Uh, people are already saying hi, Scott, in the mentions there. That's amazing. Excellent. Yep. This week I have Scott joining me. Bobby has uh, had enough of me, yeah. I suppose. She has something else. She's in summer mode now. She's like, she's like, I'm done. I'm taking it. Uh, I'm taking Start, it into the yeah. summer. Long weekend early. So. Yeah, we are gonna do. We're gonna do the after party tonight. And we're going to do it next week. Bobby will be back. We're going to do next week to yep. wrap up the series. And then we're going to go a little sporadic for the summer a bit. Um, right. Do it as we can. Yeah. So we haven't quite figured out exactly what the rhythm is going to be like for the whole summer. Yeah. But we're going to take a bit of a break. So anyway. I mean, there's enough changing in the world. So it's why not true. Uh, switch up after party? Look at this. Kevin Borges. I didn't know Scott was on after party. <laughs> All caps. He's excited about this. He's yelling. He's yelling. That's great. That's true. Scott, uh, tell us about your... I was going to say, we're going to do catch-ups here? Is that Let's do gonna... like your last 12 weeks because you haven't been on the after party yet. 12. So <laughs> you can catch us up on everything that's happened in the last 12 oh, weeks. Wow. What's happening? Uh, well, I had a COVID birthday, so I turned 40 without a party. That's not yeah. true. We did have a bit of a party. Was 40 a big deal for you? Well, that's a good question. I feel like 40 was not very exciting for me. Well, yeah. I mean, I suppose it's probably different for different people. Um know if it's a big deal i mean i think the big deal is that dar and i turned 40 the same year so we've been like that's plotting and scheming and saying like what how can we celebrate this together rachel and, and i are a year apart okay so, so she just, yeah so she's a couple years behind you i'm assuming she's one year behind, year behind okay. me yeah so okay so you couldn't share commiserate yeah. you couldn't commiserate yeah. also you know what i'm realizing now as i've set this up is i switched the cameras around yeah. so usually the button that i push for your camera is, is my you. camera so i probably already had like just empty cameras just while we're you. talking yeah it's exactly or no it's just like me when you're talking <laughs> and it's you when i'm talking so that's good it's all right that's we'll all figure this out it's all good um, okay, so you had a birthday. Had a birthday. Uh, defended my dissertation, which you guys talked big deal. about big on, deal. The, on the air. Yep. It was a big deal. Um, but again, that sort of happened in the middle of COVID. Uh, you're going to need to get your mic a like right. Closer. Yeah, right. Just, a little closer. Yeah, you can pull it closer, but you have to be sort of right on top I'm of it. I'm just going to have to sit up. That's all that's going to happen. So, Do it like this. Um, yeah, so you talked about your COVID birthday, which people COVID couldn't birthday, hear. COVID uh, dissertation defense, which... Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that took up a big section of the twelve-week process. One of the things that we probably didn't talk about is that you sort of hand the thing in, you successfully defend, and then they send you away to like revise right. the thing. So that took me a few weeks, but it's all done now. And actually, first day I was away for a few days last week. Uh, took a bit of a break, and on the first day of that, my diploma came in the mail. So uh, Nora, my youngest daughter, sort of brought it out to me in the backyard, and I took a graduation photo in the backyard in my like tool belt and everything so did they did they send you a robe and anything yet no 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 they actually just sent me an email saying that i can come to do it in person someday if i hope someday I, someday <laughs> exactly in 2025 or whatever rachel anyway. finished uh yes. not her master's but her first graduate certificate on her way towards her master and they mailed her a hat <laughs> Oh, because, that's kind of cool. Yeah, because of COVID and everything. That was kind of nice, I thought. It was well, a nice Which touch. she took a picture she with. She did, yeah. yeah. So they mailed her a hat and a little certificate that's, and stuff, which I don't know. I, I'm assuming they don't do that in normal years. Well, that's true. When you finish one third of a master's degree. But I thought it was pretty cool that they well, also, made a Rachel's little Rachel's done a lot in this last year. You guys have yeah, been through some that's stuff. That's what I mean. So I, th I thought it was pretty cool that they it sent is. this little this little gesture cool. of this moment. So. Anyway, well, I think that catches you up on my 12 weeks. I, uh, we did spend a little bit of time away last week. Did some hiking in Jasper. Yeah. You, some of you probably saw it on Instagram. So You were intending to go to the West to Coast Trail. To the West Coast Trail. Um, and that uh, wasn't going to happen this right. year. So we, we actually, I'd never been to Jasper. So it was kind of fun to go to another place in, in our country and do some hiking. We love being that, or being outdoors and doing that sort of stuff. I'm not so. sure if you can hear my jingly coffee. I made a yeah. iced espresso tonight. Yeah, it's you good. That's good. <laughs> Usually I'm drinking tea on the after party, but tonight but I'm changing it up. it up. That's great. Hmm. All right. So well, any other catch ups for you? I mean, you've mentioned. I forget what Bobby does on this. Bobby does all the work for the after party. Well, I've got, and I've, I just I've show up. work here, Jerry. We, I think I we're just, good to go. I just talk about whatever she tells me to talk about. So yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what she does. Um, yeah. Right now we are thick in the preparations for... Yeah. Uh, slowly beginning to reopen uh, commons. So on Sunday, we're going to have our first service uh, at 10.30 a.m. You do need to register if you're interested in joining us in person. You can go to commons.church slash reopen for the details and to reserve a seat. But this is interesting. It's um, yeah. It feels like, you know, you have three 
where you have years, decades of muscle, muscle memory in terms of doing, doing services. And now all of a sudden, um, you know, it, it feels very foreign to figure out how to do a service and how to put it together all again. So yeah. that's a little bit. And then also we've made a lot of changes in the building. Um, some facility work that we thought we would do because we'd have lots of time. Yep. Um, and then a lot of stuff that we're doing right now in terms of preparing to do in-person services and live streaming. So there's still a lot of things that have to come together before Sunday. So yeah. we're working hard on that. It's actually, you know, my sort of take on it is it's, it's, I mean, easy is not the right word, but it's, we know how to do an in-person service. We're pretty good at that. We learned quickly how to do a live stream service. Online. We got right. good at that. It's infinitely more complex to do a live stream service and, and a live in-person service at the same time. That's right. So there's just a lot of uh, prep and a lot of, um, I mean, mainly it's just me in the attic crawling around, pulling <laughs> new wires around, drilling holes. throughout the building. It's so It's true. It's true. That's a big part of it. But it's but. also exciting to sort of be looking at like this, mm -hmm. the prospect of being in the room with people again. And uh, I mean, that's part of what our job has always yep. been. And, and now we've lost that for a few months. So yeah. I mean, nice. we had a, an initial, well, final staff meeting today running through just all the protocols. How's it going to work? And I think there's, um, I think there's a lot of excitement about what that's going to be like. I think we all we all got into this job for that type of thing, not to be YouTubers. Um, but also there's some just some trepidation in terms of what's it actually going to look like? How's it going to work? Yeah. Um, do have we actually thought of all the different you know complexities that go into creating a service like this? Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean. I feel good about it. <laughs> you say that we don't really want to be YouTubers while we're sitting here on YouTube. Yes, yeah, so true. Great. Very true. Hello, Andy. How are you? Oh, yeah, that's Kevin right. Kevin Borst with the sunglasses on there. I don't even know what that emoji means, but I use it a it lot. Super cool. Super cool. That's why I'm like, I just, uh, I like sunglasses. Yeah. You want to chat about anything else going on in the world? I mean, it's, uh, I mean we got a national What's holiday happening? tomorrow. National um, holiday. Yeah. I don't know. Is that a big deal for you coming from Ontario, being closer to the nation's capital? Is I mean, Ottawa is a big deal on yeah. Canada's day. Yeah. I, was I don't, I mean, I don't know. Are they doing fireworks tomorrow? So I actually just went and checked and there's this virtual fireworks feature that they're going to have where you can take oh, your phone yeah. and point it at the sky and at 10 p.m. Okay. There will be like a virtual fireworks display on your phone. And I'm not mm. sure how they're getting that to work, but uh, that's just here in Calgary. And you just have to look towards yeah, have, Stampede uh, Grounds? Or you have to tell, or yeah, where are the, where are the Canada, are they on the Center Street mm. Bridge? You, I think those yeah. ones, yeah. Okay. Anyway, I just had gone to look it up and I hadn't seen anything about that yet, so. Interesting. Um, now, from what I've heard, they are they not doing real fireworks too? I think that's, um, we actually were talking about it yeah. staffing today. Uh, I think that's maybe at Stampede Grounds okay, during that's the Stampede, Stampede okay. Week, but gotcha. anyway. Yeah, I don't, and like, again, thinking for me, I was like booking meetings for tomorrow and people are like, it's Canada day. I'm, I'm like, working. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, be, <laughs> I'll be here in the attic. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, the point was that I just totally sort of lost my frame yeah. of reference for that. It's never really been a big deal for us. Again, I don't live in the city where there's going to be a million people usually on right. the street. Clearly there's not going to be that this year, but. Um, hey, you don't know. Oh, that's true. People are excited, man. They want to get Canada out of Canada day masks. That'd it's be true. great. That's awesome. It's a compilation of previous year's fireworks, according to Kevin Borst. Okay, there we go. Oh, for Stampede, he's saying. Message retracted. What? <laughs> Kevin Borst is giving us... They got bad breaking news. Bad <laughs> fake news from Kevin Borst on our YouTube channel. That's great. All right. That's good. Anything else going on in the world got your attention? Um, I mean, I've... I have no attention left for anything. Oh, I feel like the no month... Kidding. Okay, so month. here, I'll just make mention then of the thing that grabbed my attention mm. today. So there was this announcement... Uh, out of Hong Kong, um, mm. where the Chinese government Big deal, actually. Yeah, released Big deal. their sort of new legislation surrounding law and uh, sort of clamping down on some of the yep. de uh, democratic movements that have been developing in Hong Kong for quite some time. And uh, obviously because of some of the work that I've done and some of the yep. people I've worked with, I was... I sort of found that to be really, again, like you just said, like it feels like a time where I can't possibly take on anything else, but that, uh, that one kind of mm -hmm. sideswiped me, um, which is, I mean, again, we live in a world where everything's constantly changing, so I guess I shouldn't be surprised. But Yeah, and this is uh, about a month on the heels of the U.S. ending their special relationship with Hong Kong, which is, um, I mean, the U.S. administration has been talking tough about China all this yep. time, but yep. then essentially just gave China everything they wanted by right. ending... Yeah. They had a direct connection with Hong Kong, and they handed that all back over to China. Yeah. And now a month later, 
yeah. China has come in with, uh, with really strong legislation, on clamping so. down. And uh, I think one of the things that sort of really struck me today is the fact that there are there have been several uh, youth movements or young adults, mm-hmm. people who've been sort of ch- championing the the cause of um, democratic movement in Hong Kong. And I think I read that four four key people in those movements had like resigned and said mm-hmm. like basically if if I don't quit doing this, I'm going to end up in jail uh, for the rest of my life, presumably. Yeah. And um, so that's something that's really hard to see. And it's also something um, I think is the, these kinds of populist movements uh, have often been, we often look to our neighbors to the south and say populism doesn't mm-hmm. seem to bear the best things in the world. But some of what we've seen in China or specifically in Hong Kong has right. actually been profound. Um, and it's kind of sad to see this sort of response to it. Anyways, I know that's, uh, well, it's just something that grabbed my attention mm-hmm. today in a world that's yep. pretty crazy. Like you said, so hard to have attention left. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's, you know, you joke about that, but it is important that yeah. we do kind of find ways to still have attention for things in the world. And not only that, I mean, still have attention for relationships and still have attention for, you know, in terms of people we care about, like all yeah. these things. I mean, this is one of the, I think it's been one of the trying things of these last few months is there's so much going on yeah. and you know, you feel it personally because of the shutdown. I think people are anxious because of economics. Then there's yeah. black lives matter. Then there's all this stuff piling on. I think it is difficult, but it is important that we take some time to say, okay, how do I maintain some bandwidth for what's happening in the world? Maintain bandwidth for people I care about, right? You know, not kind of drift off into right. some of, yeah, overwhelmed by this stuff. Yeah, and withdrawal. One of the things I'll add is I've had some conversations with people in our community actually over the last few months as we've been talking about uh, that sense of being overwhelmed and I can't care about it all. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that sort of emerged in those conversations was this sense of, well, that's actually one of the roles of community. Right. Is to say, I can't possibly care as much about local politics as mm-hmm. somebody else in our community, but I can I can entrust and I can use use them as a way of mm-hmm. staying connected, knowing that they, mm-hmm. you know, it's like day in, day out, they sort of carry that thing. Yeah. While my attention is sort of maybe, you know, geared towards some other things. I, To me, that's been one of the valuable things of continuing to be in community, continuing to share conversations mm-hmm. about all that's going on in the world. Um, I'm thankful for a community like ours where there's lots of people like that. Yeah, not only that, but even, I mean, yeah, you think about, the the elements we're trying to incorporate into services right um you know and i mean i don't i don't mean this in a bad way but you know a couple weeks ago we were trying to figure out how do we do what was it it was father's Father's day Day and uh, national National indigenous Indigenous people's day Day and world refugee day right all in the span of you know about eight days yeah and then trying to figure out how do you honor all of those stories and you know there there comes a point where you just ah you throw up your hands and and like ah we can't manage all this but working through it, trying to figure out as a team, you know, like these are all important things. Um, you know, hey, maybe you can't do, you know, the service around each of them, but a nod to each of those stories to remind us to, even if this isn't the day that you have the bandwidth to think about yep. World Refugee Day, that you put that marker there in your memory to say, hey, I need to come back to this yep. and I need to think about this. Yep. And, you know, for us as Canadians coming up to Canada today That's right. to make sure that we honor National Indigenous Peoples Day and, and what does it mean to be Canadian in the context of our history as Canadians and, and what that has meant for the Indigenous peoples in these lands and stuff. So, you know, Again, having those little markers, having those little reminders, it, it does become important. Yes, that's right. So. And I, always, like, I think, too, inevitably, there's, are, there are ways that our community serves me by helping me to remember. Because yeah. something will have fallen off uh, sort of the landscape of my imagination, or I just haven't been paying attention to a particular story. And I appreciate, I, I mean, just shout out to Bobby, actually, the prayer from this mm-hmm. last weekend that talked about prayers for place. Right. And... Um, there was a couple I actually wrote down. Yeah. Um, one of the things she named in there was our need for placemaking. The fact that we're always doing this and we've done sometimes incredible evil in world building in the mm-hmm. ways that we've done it as maybe um, as settler peoples. But then also the ways that all homes do this in beautiful mm-hmm. ways and just acknowledging that. I, I appreciate how she... Like, again, I wasn't thinking, we, we talked about yep. a second ago, I wasn't even really aware Canada Day was coming, uh, or at least it wasn't front of mind. And I was just sort of reminded, like, we're heading into a week where we're going to mark I that. don't know that I have that sort of deep connection to place that some people do. Like, right. I mean, I certainly appreciate, oh, I just whacked my finger on the end of this. Oh, so should we just segue into a story? <laughs> no. <adventure? laughs> so if people are interested... Last night, I cut off the end of my finger. Yes. Like, sliced it clean off. Um, 
picked up the little chunk off my yes. counter and threw it in the garbage. The problem is um, it's not like a cut, so I can't seal it back up. Like the end of my finger is gone. No, it's just like it's about two to three millimeters just missing. Oh. And I keep just like wrapping it up and it just bleeds through. And it's been about 24 hours now right. and it's not. And then every once in a while I bang it against something like I just did. And, and then you have to pause. And it's really painful. So that's what that was about. What was I saying before that? I, you, you know what? Now, to now I can feel my heart just, just beating in my there. finger. Okay. So. so you don't have attachment to place that's not like your finger isn't directly yeah. in. Yeah. Um, no, like I mean, I'm certainly grateful to live in Canada. But I don't know that I have this sort of deep connection to like the land and the space. I mean, part of it is maybe I grew up in Ontario. I lived in Saskatchewan for a bit. I was back in Ontario. Now I'm in Alberta. Yep. Um, I love this city. I love, you know, the things here. I love the mountains and stuff. But I don't have this like really rooted sense. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's different for different families. I think it's different, you know, for settlers in some ways. But I mean, I have, um, I have a sister in uh, New York City and I have right. a sister in Ontario and I have parents, you know, like right. all over the place. So, um, yeah, I've just never had the same. Like strong localized yeah. sense of identity. Yeah. You know? Although that said, you know, what's interesting about that is then my, uh, my sense of church is very localized. Like uh. I very much have a sense of this commons community being the expression of church that I'm interested in, not some sort of... Um, you know, generic or, you know, you know, broad sense of the yeah, church. Big like, C. Yeah, yeah like yeah. I'm very interested in local expressions of church, which is what we're trying to do with Kensington Commons and Inglewood Commons and that type yep. of thing. So I mean, it's this interesting mm. dynamic where... Um, you don't have that personal sense. Geography, yeah. Yeah. I don't have that kind of sense. Community, I very much have that sense, that's like in terms of church and what that means. Yeah. People are saying, dude, I'm here on my finger. I'm, I'm assuming that's for my finger, Andy. So <laughs> I appreciate that. A sympathy, <laughs> a sympathy post. Yeah. That's good. Thanks for coming through, Andy. That's great. <laughs> so, yeah. If, if anybody, this is, I'm probably grossing people out here, but if, if anybody has a solution on how you cap just an open wound like that, I'm going to stop talking about this because last night when I did it, I had to go lie down because it was so much blood and I just felt so queasy that I had to go like lie yeah, down for a little bit. just had to take a break. So I don't want to gross somebody, people out. Somebody just Google. WebMD that But stuff. if somebody knows, like how do, you, how do you stem the flow? Like what do you do? Heavy gauze pad. That's all I've got. Yeah. And so. wrap it. Your finger wrap should be four times as large. That's my Yeah, idea. maybe that's it. Anyway. All right. Cool. Let's come back because I actually think that there was a segue there in what you were saying about your own sense of having a strong attachment to. Can we just then talk about jump about into the series? Yeah, let's in? do it. Because I, um, I, I sort of find it intriguing. We're in this series where we're talking about how how do we feel it's really important to read the scriptures, and this is something that I think we we kind of circle back around from time to time in our community because mm -hmm. we sort of see that as being really important, and it actually predates me coming to Commons. It's something that I appreciate. We haven't done a series like this, right? Right. But we this is language that comes up regularly for us throughout the year. That's right. Which I think is part of the reason. I've enjoyed this series. It's because it's taking some of these foundational things that I weave through the teaching for years and now just right. like... And just naming it. Yeah, naming it. Like, this is how we're reading things. This is how we're thinking. You okay. know, that kind of thing. So but let, anyway, I, sorry, well, I interrupted I, you. No, let me just then pose the question to you. Why do you think that's really important for communities to do? Because one of the things I think is mm -hmm. true is that lots of communities sort of have assumed hermeneutics. They right. sort of will teach for years and years and years without naming mm -hmm. the founding or the fundamental principles by which they read the text. And I, I think it's really important. I'm grateful that we're trying to be as explicit. I mean, obviously we mm -hmm. can't name every way we read the text. Obviously we read it differently as individuals who teach on the team, right. but to say at the center of community, this is what we aspire to. And mm -hmm. I'm just sort of curious, like, like, why do you think that's important? Or is that something that every community mm. should be trying to do, trying to become honest about those things? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think, yeah. Um, I think you're very right in the sense that every church has a shared hermeneutic. Right. Um, I think what often happens is not everyone in the room is reading with the same hermeneutic. Right. And we talked about this early in the series, but your hermeneutic is the way you uh, create meaning out of something. It's not just your interpretation of something. Right. Like your interpretation is, you know, um, what you think this passage is saying to you. Your hermeneutic is where you derive meaning from. Yeah. Um, it's broader than that. Yeah. And I think what happens in a lot of communities is, um, there is, there's an assumed hermeneutic 
that some people are operating room and so that's the majority mm. and then people come in and they're operating under a different set of assumptions and then it right. takes them time to sort of find their place right. and then go oh you don't think the way that i do and then they either have to change their way of thinking or they have to find another community that fits them better right. i think what we've tried to do at commons um even before this series is to name some things in the journal so the first week of the series i, I read from yeah, the journal that's right and that was a that was us saying really when we wrote that two years ago i think yeah the idea was and I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I'll be blunt about this. I don't want to, I don't want to be mean about it. I'll be blunt about it. I don't want to waste people's time right. who are going to show up because they've heard of commons or they've heard me preach sometime, but they really don't think this way. They're really looking for something that's, you know, more conservative, more traditional. Um, and then they're going to spend three months here. They're going to spend six months here listening and then eventually they're going to bump up against something. They're like, you can't say that or you can't think that way. Right. And then I'm going to have to explain, well, we've always thought that way. It's just you're recognizing right. now because it's pushing against sort of a, a touchy subject or for an assumption. You. Yeah. yeah. And so I think when we wrote that piece in the journal, it was about um, trying to save people from that experience. Like if you read that introduction in the journal and you're like, I don't resonate with that, then you know that it's not worth your time wasting six months here listening to sermons right. because it's not a one-off piece. It's a core foundational idea of how That's we right. read the Bible and how we're thinking about things. So I really wrote that piece in the journal to try to save people time. Yeah, and be honest. And be honest up yeah, front. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think what happens in communities is um, they there's an assumed hermeneutic, but they haven't really thought it through to yeah, the yeah. same extent. Right. And they're not really sure what's unique about the way they read the Bible or the way this community operates. Right. And so they know they're not able to articulate it. And then what happens is that you end up, you have to spend a lot of time in that community to sort of um, survey the land and figure out where yeah. you are and get your basis under you. And I think what we're trying to do is bring that forward a little bit quicker. Now there's two sides to that. There's the people for whom um, our way of thinking doesn't work and it's not helpful for and I'm trying to save those people that experience. I'm trying to say, like, if this doesn't work for you, I'm not yeah. trying to convert you. Yeah. And I'm not trying to change your way of thinking. So by all means, like, you know, let me help you find another church, you know, move on, whatever. Or be clear that this is a trajectory that we're on. So right. you can stay, you can participate, you can engage, yeah. but we're not diverting mm -hmm. from this sort of mission. We're and then on the here. other side was for people who are clearly here for the specific way that we're speaking and teaching and thinking. Yeah, okay. And I'm trying to say to them, okay, if this is what you've heard of, this is where you're wondering, if you're thinking, Hey, maybe I could find a place here. Let me help you accelerate your process of feeling, okay, this is the space for you. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I mean, there's times in life where things move very slowly and it takes us a very long time and that's okay. Um, but I still think the more you put on the table and the more upfront you are, then the better. Yeah. Like I think there's a kindness in just saying, this is who we are. This is how we think. Um, yeah. If you're exploring that, by all means, take yeah. your time. Like lean, take lean as long as you us. want. Yeah. Yeah. But if you know this isn't for you, then I'm not trying to sell you on something so I can get you in here and get you hooked and no. then, you know, Switch have it. the other foot drop, yeah. you know, on a, on a, you know, you want me to be more liberal. You want me to be less liberal. You want me more conservative. You want me less liberal. like yeah. either side. I don't really care. Like I'm not trying to bait and switch anybody. I'm trying yeah. to say, this is who we are as a community. These are the foundational ideas that are shaping commons. Yeah. Here they are. Here they are up front. I'm just walking my mic here. Um, here they are up front. So, yeah. You know, um, and I, and I think that's, yeah, I think that's, um, it's generous and kind to do that kind of thing. Also, I would argue that it's compelling. I mean, it's one of the things that drew me Sometimes, to this yeah. community, uh, specifically in the fact that I think, um, I mean, I, I know I've heard it said that to, sort of to be Protestant. So our church sort of sits in this broad mm -hmm. tradition is to, to make a big deal about the scriptures or these stories right. or these texts and in making a big deal about them, you also have to allow for the fact that there is a long history mm -hmm. of interpretation and one that continues right. to unfold, one that we're participating mm -hmm. in. And that effectively means um, that you have to, as, or at least I think it means that you have to as much as possible own how you're reading it, because that's one of the ways that we're faithful in this tradition that we're in over and against both other traditions, but then also just to like come 
to a place of self-awareness and maturity. Otherwise, I think, uh, like you were saying, I think we might mislead people or we, um, we aren't clear on our direction mm-hmm. as a community. Um, yeah, and it's not, I don't think any, tr- well, yeah. I'm not thinking about it. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I don't think any churches intentionally miss people, yeah. mislead people. I'm not sure that's true. I think some churches do. I think some churches do know that they have um, yeah. views that are not socially um, welcome. And so they try to hide that those things. Yeah. Um, and whatever. I'm not, you know, whatever. People can do whatever. I'm just not really interested in that. Like, right. I'm, I'm interested in putting our stuff on the table and saying, hey, if, if you're interested in this journey, then come along with us. You don't have to buy into any of this stuff. No. I mean, that's a big part of the way that I teach is, is trying to say, here's... Um, Here's, a, here's an interpretation. Here's a, here's a passage. Here's how it's been thought about historically over time. Here's how I think it makes sense in sort of my reading, yeah. particularly through the lens of Jesus. Um, but I'm always trying to do that in an open-ended kind of way. Like this is not what it means. This is not how it needs to be interpreted. Right. This is my, my best interpretation, reading through the lens of Jesus of what I think this is all about. Right. You can take it or leave it. Um, and you can take or leave Christianity, but let's, let's have a conversation about that what that means it, and how. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And at least acknowledges those facts. Right. right. Which, I mean, uh, do you want to talk about this week then? Yeah, let's talk we, about this. We were talking a little bit Because, I mean, poetry is <laughs> one of those ones where, um, I mean, hermeneutics come into play in really significant ways as soon as you start talking about poetry. Because yeah. there are people who will understand that the Psalms are poetry, but they will still, their hermeneutic doesn't allow them to read it as poetry. Right. They're still reading it as, well, the Psalm says this about God, therefore this thing about God right. is true. Right. Um, and sometimes that's not what poetry means, right? Sometimes poetry is about saying the opposite thing. Sometimes poetry is about coming at things slant or coming through the right. backside, you know, all these yes. different ways. Right. They, I mean, the other thing that I, th- it, it, it sort of, I think if we're not careful, we end up, if we are going to interpret the Psalms that way, is where your theology is just purely didactic. So mm-hmm. it's like straight lines. And w- I think part of what we were trying to get at with this particular sermon or mm-hmm. this idea was that actually the Psalms, uh, if you read them that way, they're, they have this internal contradiction right, right at the heart of them. Um, and I mean, because I think I think what some people get is, OK, it's a psalm. So there's metaphors. Right. Yeah. So if it says God is a rock, I get it that God is not actually a rock. Therefore, I'm reading poetry. That's not reading poetry. That's <laughs> acknowledging literary devices. Yeah, an image. Yeah. Poetry, you know, like you were talking about on Sunday is about acknowledging that, yeah, sometimes um, the most true things you can say about God are the opposite things, but they both represent something. And so those things have to be brought together. Yeah, you have to put them side by side. Right. Otherwise you end up again with a theology that's a sort of, it's, I don't know, it's built out of popsicle sticks. So they're all straight and they mm-hmm. all kind of stick together. But if you sort of like rely on mm-hmm. them, they're going to fail uh, mm-hmm. in the face of global pandemic mm-hmm. or major existential crisis. I mean, for me, that's actually what the Psalms have become. I don't rely on them for like those one-off statements. Part of what I find in them is a place where all of my complexity and not just my own, the sure. complexity of like human experience sort of time immemorial is found in their naming of uh, sometimes even the things that I can't name, the things that aren't mm-hmm. my experience, the things that are either darker or brighter than my own sense of how to be human. Um, that's like, kind of what I rely on them four um that's uh yeah i mean i i said this i think in a conversation maybe it was actually in our uh our zoom lounge on sunday night i was so, like i wouldn't i wouldn't be i wouldn't be a follower of the way of jesus if, if it were not for the mm-hmm. jewish poems and songs um because i i went through a season of my life where i didn't see i didn't see myself nor did i see the true like all of the issues that we see swirling like we were talking a second ago mm-hmm. i didn't see those named in in as concise ways or in ways that felt as honest as i did in the jewish prayer book so what's the difference between in your mind um so what's the difference between metaphor and simile and analogy and poetry because this is this is what i think sometimes people miss about the Psalms right. is they get literary device. Right. They don't get poetry. 
and I'm not sure I do either. Like I'm not a poet, so. <laughs> yeah. But I'm 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 interested in that. Like what mm. if you had to say what's the difference between, like literary device and yeah, I mean, that's actually. <clears throat> I think I mean, maybe maybe my way at coming at it is to say part of why I think poetry works for us as we try to build theology is that it doesn't ask us to do it um, with uh, concrete structures. Mm -hmm. It doesn't ask us to do it with like a metaphor that is always going to mean a certain thing. Theology or tr good poetry, good poetry might be obscuring in, in the way that it talks about a thing in the world, mm -hmm. but it's gonna use language that gets you to stay with the words, that gets you mm -hmm. to carry those words with you into the next moment, into the next day. It might even get you to carry words that you know don't make sense, but because maybe you know something of the author's story, maybe you know something of their tradition, you're going to take on some of the wisdom that those words carry without knowing mm -hmm. what they were taught, or I mean, yeah, without knowing what they were talking about, certainly without knowing what they were writing or, or when they, so they scrawled those mm -hmm. words on paper. And to me, that's actually a, maybe a truer image of what it means to build theology in the world. It's a more beautiful one at the very least, I would argue. Um, and I don't know if that gets to you, like the heart of your question, like what's the difference between those things? Because like, again, literary devices, again, people can fill a poem with literary device and mm -hmm. it's not very good. Part of what right. I think what makes poetry uh, meaningful is its capacity to strike and to capture. And that's one of the things I said on Sunday is that you really do, I find that when poetry is obscuring or difficult, generally what it requires of me is more time. Right. And often what I've found is, is specifically with tons of modern poets is to go and read some of that person's story, mm -hmm. like find some background. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden what comes into frame is something that I may not have seen in the metaphor. Sure mm -hmm. enough, like the power isn't in the metaphor. It's in this sort of way that they take words, they shape it. Um, and then I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, I think I referenced this on Sunday too, uh, Gregory Orr, a modern American poet, who sort of talks about how poetry has this capacity to invite us to bring our metaphors, our similes, these word structures, these things that we use to try to describe our experiences of pain and sorrow and darkness and doubt. And poetry says, bring, bring hmm. me those. I'll then take those words and I'll give you ordering principles with which to live. Like I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll turn that into something. And that's maybe what, and I, I, mean, I, I, mean, I don't know if, if you're sort of finding it convincing because it's, it's a bit of a hypothesis. That's even some of what my hypothesis mm -hmm. was on Sunday. Like if you don't know what to do with the Psalms, stop reading the Psalms and go, go read some modern mm -hmm. African-American poetry, poetry of Black Lives Matter, for example, like the, which you can go and find. You can find mm -hmm. people who are producing this. And, if, and I find that if you can take the time to sort of capture an image for what might be going on in those words. Then if you were to go back to a text that was written, you know, 1700 mm. years ago, you might at least at the very least, you'd have a sense of the pathos that's like at the very core mm -hmm. of it. It's not just an analogy of God as shepherd. There's this, this sense in which it, the divine might be the one that brings, brings peace in the, in the middle of my enemies. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, and I, I maybe there's, and maybe that's actually what's annoying about poetry is that sort of intangible, um, that's my hypothesis then. Mm -hmm. Like if I find like I'm not getting it, I just, okay, I'll just, I need to give it yeah. some more time. I just find, yeah, I like all that. I just think for me sometimes um, when, especially when it comes to biblical hmm. interpretation, um, you know, things come down to the devices that are used in the poetry rather than, oh, um, okay sort of embedding yourself in that poem because prose uses all the same right. literary devices. Right. But prose is, and again, and these are not hard definitions, but prose, you know, here's a thing that I'm trying to communicate. I'm going to get this across to you in as, not always, but as straightforward or as uh, right. convincing a way as possible. Right. And I may use concrete language. I might use metaphor. Yeah. I'm going to use whatever it is to that. Um, I think the problem sometimes when we go to the Psalms is we recognize the literary device. Oh, that's a metaphor. What we don't recognize is the whole point of the poem is slant. So the point of the poem yeah. is not to straightforwardly talk about God, just using literary devices. Yeah. The point of poetry is to talk about God in ways that are roundabout or in ways that take you, you know, into places you don't expect. 
and in ways that, again, like you were talking about on Sunday, that juxtapose contrasting ideas about God. Right. In a way that with prose, we probably wouldn't do. In, in prose, we wouldn't say, um, you know, that God smashes his enemies and in the next line say God that is God gracious. is gracious and forgiving and always good. Like you wouldn't say those because that would, it would feel contradictory, right. you know, and we would all recognize it as such. In the Psalms though, those things can coexist in a different kind of way. Now the other piece is you have the Psalms as the prayer book of the Hebrew people. So you have individual Psalms, yeah. but then you have a community that said these two Psalms can fit together, yes. even though they're saying, so yes. you have, you have psalms within psalms and you have psalms within a prayer book and yes, all of that yes. is adding new layers of right. complexity on Which, top of things. And, I mean, this is, again, one of the things that I find comforting in this collection is the fact that it allows for, especially if they've been composed by mm -hmm. multiple communities over hundreds of years, right. there's something about this allowance for us to say different things at different times. Yeah. Uh, to use metaphors that five years later we might find completely abhorrent to mm -hmm. describe our experience or like, and this yep. goes for our descriptions of God, our, you know, our theological convictions, the ways that we change and morph. That's, mm -hmm. um, that's one of the things that I found most profound about going to this mm -hmm. particular group of texts and then, and then just letting, letting those contradictions stand for what they are, because I know on my own set of intern, like, <laughs> internalized contradictions, mm -hmm. but then also externalized. There's ways in which I live in direct contradiction to the things maybe that I feel are most mm -hmm. needed or the things I'm most passionate about. Um, and learning to say, is it possible that all these things um, in the mercy of God or you know, like grace being mm -hmm. a capital G, like that grace works to renew these things mm -hmm. in me uh, and, and in us, certainly. That's what I, one of the things I would trust. That's actually one of the things I was sort of mentioning when I was thinking, uh, one of the ones we talked about at Psalm 30, uh, 137, which of course is a really difficult mm -hmm. one, right? Composed as the Jewish people have been taken as refugees. They've been displaced. Mm -hmm. And I, I found Robert Alter's sort of yeah. like language around like, it's really important to imagine this Psalm being, they're, they're speaking it in a language that their captors would- That's an interesting thing. So- I tried to look through a few things. Right. Yeah, um, that's right. Feel and free I didn't question. feel... I mean, it's alters... Uh, yeah, but I, well, I was just interested because I really liked that. And I didn't find anyone other than alters sort of talking about that aspect of it. So the idea that um, they're singing about the destruction of their enemies, happier those who dash their enemies' babies on the rocks or something. Right. The setup for the psalm is, you know, the Babylonians come and say, hey, sing us songs of your homeland. Yeah. And then the Hebrew people start singing these songs um, that sound Jewish and probably make the Babylonians smile, but they're saying these terrible things right. in front of them. Right. Which is a really interesting image that, yeah. you know, so first of all, okay, my first impression of that psalm is, okay, um, there are, here's how I've always read that psalm. They're captured, they're angry, they're, they're beaten down, they're oppressed, and they lash out. Yes. And they just say these terrible things. Right. Now when, you know, Alter's picture of it, it feels a little different. It doesn't necessarily feel like they're lashing out. Or that they have no agency. Yeah, it yeah. feels now like maybe um, they know what they're saying is absurd. They know they don't really believe it. But it's a way of just together, you know, sticking it to these people that are having them sing songs. Right. Um, you know, like I could, I'm trying to think of an analogy, right. you know, in sort of or my life. Yeah. yeah. You know, where I would do that. But, um, you know, I remember as a kid, um, you know, in my family. So I have some friends, uh, some family that's Acadian yep. from New Brunswick and they spoke French. And, you know, my French was better at that point. And I remember we used to tease um, some of my cousins by speaking in French um, in front of cousins that could, that only spoke Couldn't English hear. and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, you would you know, say stupid things and stuff. And the, the point of it was the, the fact that some of us knew what was happening and the other ones didn't. Right. And I don't even remember, like we would say insults and stuff like that, <laughs> but the point was not even what the insults were or no. anything. It was just sort of this insider joke, right. you know, and it, it would frustrate them or whatever. That was just a really interesting insight from Alter that when I was listening to your message, it, like it, sent me off on all these sort of rabbit trails in my head because I had always read it as um, 
We're angry. We're saying these things because in this moment, we really believe it would be good if we could smash your babies. Right. And maybe that's not what's going on. Maybe they're saying these horrible things um, and they know they're horrible and they know they're not true and they know it wouldn't make them happy. Yeah. But it's a way of saying... Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by that. Did you read anyone else who was no, giving no, sort no, of no. that like, kind I, of an argument? I was just sort of struck by it. Yeah. And again, maybe this is the challenge. Is Because I, mean, I looked at Craigie, who I yeah, like, and yeah. a few other Psalms commentators. And yeah, and I think he, he, I mean, again, Alter, as a scholar, is just generally going with a na- sort of narrative approach to these mm-hmm. texts. And so I think he was sort of extemporaneously just sort of saying, isn't it interesting to imagine this yeah. kind of scene? And I love Alter. So I mean, <laughs> um, what, a, what a, yeah, Robert Alter, by the way, yes, if you haven't, yeah. if you don't know the name, his name's Robert Alter. He's been a Hebrew scholar for years, but um, one of the things he's been working on in the background, which is where Scott the God is from, because I own it in a big three volume, beautiful set is his translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Yes. So over his career, he's translated the entire uh, Hebrew scriptures, all of the old Testament and it's a really beautiful translation. Um, the the binding and the set that you can buy from him yeah, is, is so beautiful as well. Pretty. But it comes with his translation and then all his critical notes, yep. you know, on the bottom of the page and stuff. And that's the one that Scott was referencing. And it's, it's a beautiful volume. If you're interested, you should go check it out. You Unfortunately, it's, it's like 150 bucks, I think, to buy right. the whole thing. But, yeah. you know. <laughs> if it falls on you. The, um, one of the things that I appreciate, Alter suggests, is that that... They're suggest like it's it's beautiful to imagine the scene unfolding that way. That doesn't sort of excuse what's sort of morally right. sort of incomprehensible about mm-hmm. these violent images, which I think is part of what we were trying to to get at in this broader conversation. Yeah. Is saying how do what do we do? And I think you did in the previous week as well. Like mm-hmm. what do we do with these images mm-hmm. uh, that pop up in texts that we sort of say are inspired? How do we yeah. how do we justify statements like that? Um, which is why I think we we sort of throughout this series are pushing towards well then how do we how do we come to a place where we can take Jesus not just as a lens but then also mm-hmm. Jesus as a co-interpreter of these right. texts um, and, which yeah I think was the most well not the most one of the other really fascinating things that you did on Sunday was Jesus reinterpretation yeah of the poetry of Isaiah uh, yeah, yeah you know where Jesus yeah. is we're not just now we're not just reading poetry through the lens of Jesus. No. Jesus is reading poetry He's through the lens of Jesus. A co-interpreter with us. And yeah. making changes to it. Yeah. Like dramatic ones. Yes. Which and that's what we're gonna get to next week when we do Revelation. That's right. That's right. Um because how much do I want to give away here? Yeah, you know, so don't, don't. in Luke, Jesus reinterprets <laughs> Isaiah sixty one. Yeah. Um, in the image that we're gonna look at in Revelation next week, which is the rider on the white horse, which is the image that everybody goes to when they want to say, yes, Jesus was meek and mild the first uh, time. Right. But when he comes back, look out. Right. He's going to pile up bodies. Yeah. Terrible, yeah. bad interpretation of that psalm. But also, what we're going to look at is that image is a reinterpretation of Isaiah 63. Yeah. So Isaiah 61, Jesus says, well, Isaiah says, the Messiah has come to um, proclaim to the year yeah. of the Lord's favor, all the good stuff, and the day of the Lord's vengeance. Jesus comes along, says, I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, rolls up the scroll and says, now the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah. Leaves off the day of vengeance. Yeah. Isaiah 63 is the description of what the, the day of the Lord's vengeance looks like. Yeah. I'm going to argue on Sunday that Revelation Spoiler 19 yeah. is now reinterpreting what that image looks like. Right. You know, so there is this, there is this idea in Isaiah. Um, and then Jesus and then the writer of Revelation are both taking Isaiah and saying, you know, tweaks and twists right. and pointing it in new directions. Yeah, offering new readings. So, so I'm interested in that. Yeah. You brought it up. Um, what does that mean to you in terms of not just Jesus as a lens to read through, but Jesus as someone who reinterprets for us? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's some of where I tried to go at the end right. of things on Sunday is I, I find... Um, like again, I so I pointed to Mark's gospel where like the only words that Mark gives Jesus in his dying moments are these sort of quotes, this mm-hmm. riff on a Hebrew psalm. Right. And I, I, I really do think that you know if we put too thick a theological overlay on mm-hmm. that passage, we miss. You know, is it possible Jesus said other things? Absolutely. And so this is the psalm Jesus is on the cross. Yeah, Jesus is on the and cross. And he quotes Psalm twenty, and he says, "My God, my God, why have you yeah. forsaken me?" And if you go and read the rest of that psalm, Psalm mm-hmm. 20, it is 
again, it is not a, you know, a meek and mild prayer. It's, right. I mean, the, the Hebrew actually reads, why are you not hearing my roaring mm-hmm. words, the words I roar? And I, I thought, well, it's just as easy to imagine Jesus continuing. Yeah. And to me, that's... Because it comes, the psalm comes around. Yeah. Like in Psalm 20. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. So there it's is an true. interpretation of Jesus on the cross that says... It says that he that he gets to that place. He reads the whole thing. And this is, I mean, this is tough. You know, we can talk about this one. I think it's an interesting one. Um, You do get this in the New Testament. You do see this in Hebrew literature a lot where you, uh, a line of a passage is the callback to the whole thing. Right. So the fact that Mark quotes Jesus saying the one line, it's not at all a stretch to say that's mark saying jesus quoted psalm 20. that's right right like he's not going to waste his time writing out everything jesus says it's like a it's like a cf or something like it's like here's the line now go look it up now let's get on with the story yeah yeah and that's a like that's a that's a pretty that's a phenomenon that we understand right and so that's one interpretation that jesus starts with that and he moves from the feeling of being alone to god rescuing him Right. right. So that's one. Right. Which, quite honestly, yeah. I don't find particularly convincing. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, if I mean, to your earlier question, like you know, how do how do I come at this and seeing Jesus as like a, not just a reinterpreter of poetry, but then also a co-interpreter with us, looking at the poetry of our own lives and then trying to use words to mm. s- sort of describe his own experience of it. Um, I don't think it's plaintive or it's like, it's, a, it's not a worshipful moment. It's, and mm. I think that's the point I tried to make. I wasn't trying to say, I think I may use more provocative words than I intended. I, but really at the point, I don't think this isn't, this isn't God as sort of creative being and God as the incarnate son right. talking to each other. This right. is a human being yeah. sounding the poetic language of every person mm. ever caught by imperial power, any person ever falsely accused. To me, that's where, I mean, again, this is where I think Jesus is really helpful for us and how to read the poetry of, of our own lives. And then also the poetry of the scripture that seems to say, well, how can there be, how can there be rejection and forlornness and then celebration in the same Psalm? That makes yeah. no sense. Jesus says, oh, well, I've, right. I've actually been through th- that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to come back to Andy's question here oh, in yeah, a second. Yeah. I want to, because I think there's some interesting things we can talk about there. Um, but yeah, I mean, so in those last words, yeah. you've got the idea that Jesus is actually reciting the whole thing. And it is a theological moment because he's starting with the feeling of being lost and he's landing on, you know, the God rescuing moment. Right. So that's what Mark's doing. There's your interpretation, which is that this isn't really Jesus talking to God. Um, so much as this is Jesus quoting a psalm, you know, the same yeah. way that any of us might quote um, meaningful prayers and yeah. poetry in a moment of crisis. As a way of describing our experience. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's not so much like a, yeah, a father-son moment as much as it is just a human quoting. Yeah. yeah and not even, not even human in the sense of not divine, no, but that's not a what, person, let's yeah. say it that way. Yeah. A person quoting... Um, words that have been meaningful and comforting and describing part of their life. Yeah. You know, yeah. The sort of, um, I don't know what the language would be like a reformed reading would be that this is actually expressing the dereliction. Right. Right. So this is an actual, you know, um, Jesus becoming sin and now being separated from God. Right. In some, some way. Some way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know how that works and you still hold on to the Trinity or whatever, but yeah, you know, um, see, and I find that mm-hmm. to be a reduction of the poetry that's there mm-hmm. to take and draw a straight line right. from some words that were spoken, some analogy, how, mm-hmm. like how could God forsake anyone? That makes no sense right. to draw a straight line from that to some sort of theological premise. Mm seems reductionist to me and I like reductionist maybe overly reductionist because I understand how ideas develop mm-hmm. and these kinds of things but I to me the power of that passage is this mm-hmm. I mean I think that's the language I use I said like in this kind of poetry and in Jesus using this kind of poetry there's an expression of God's solidarity right. with what it means to take on all of our experience yeah and I don't need it to accomplish a theological straight right. line in order to be powerful and potent mm-hmm. and meaningful I yeah, yeah, I, I totally get that. And I, I think you've, 
if not completely, you're winning me over to that. <laughs> well, I, I don't start this. As I an don't. Argument. Yeah, I don't like that sort of reformed perspective that this is God turning God's back on Jesus uh, hmm. because of you know Jesus taking on this sin or God pours God's wrath out on Jesus and therefore can't look at him yeah. and forsakes him. I've always been very partial to Moltmann's yes, interpretation yes. of this, which I think is quite beautiful and strangely poetic in the way that it exactly. captures yeah. um, something that doesn't really make a lot of sense either. Yeah. Uh, but I like, I mean, I'm, I'm quite drawn to the way that you're speaking about it now, that the, mom, the, the beauty of this moment is not theological. Yeah, it's not a straight line. As no. much as it yeah. is, you know, um, an expression of something human. Now, Moltmann, and what I like about what he says there is he talks about um, this point that all of us feel. So he's not, he's not going the reformer at where is God turns God's back on Jesus because of this moment. But it's Jesus experiencing that point of death um, where now we are cut off from how we've known ourselves, how we've known God, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And what he talks about is the triune God that has only ever known communion and right. relationship um, now experiences separation the same way that we do. Um, all we know as human beings is connection. It's not pure and it's not complete the way that God does. But from the moment we come into the world, we have connection to the physical world. We have connection to each other in some way. Right. And at the moment of death, we're separated from that. So God now experiences that for the first time. And there's an agony to it. And then through the power of the spirit and the resurrection, God is reunited right. and that God actually becomes, um, a Moltmann would say, God becomes more God yeah. because now God knows not only what it means to be in communion with God's self, but right. God knows what it means to be reunited with God's self. Right. And so he says, you know, the, the scene of dereliction is important, not because God turns God's back, but because God experiences everything that it means to be human, including separation and including reunion, which reunion can only be a human experience. It can't be a divine experience right. until the cross. Yeah. Like that's something that only we get. Right. Now God gets it. So now God is more God. But what Moltmann also says, which I think is just profoundly beautiful, is that now history is, is brought up into the triune God because not only has God created history and created creation, acted in now it, yeah. creation has acted back on God. Yes. Because without creation, God could never experience separation. God could never experience reunification. Right. So now because of God's creation and us, God has now experienced something new. God is more God than God was before God created. And it's not process theology, um, the way that Moltmann's formatting it, but there's some real elements of uh, Whitehead and Hartshorn in there, you know, in terms of right. how God is experiencing some new things here, which I think is a really interesting way to think about it. But that is an extremely, theolo like that's even a more theological take. So maybe what I've realized right. is I like the non-theological take and I like the super theological take. What I don't like is but the I, angry God theological right. take. Right, fair enough. But I, <laughs> I think that the, like your super theological take only, it makes more sense using a poetic reading. Yeah. There's more poetic truth in that, in like allowing Jesus. Well, but I mean, how can, I mean, we call that theology. I'm calling, I'm calling it theology. Um, I mean, a better term might be theopoetics, which is from, you would know. Who is that? It's not John Cobb. It's John Caputo. Ah, John Caputo yes. talks about theopoetics, which is right. the idea that really, you know, we don't have theologos. We don't have words about God. When we really get down to it, all we have is poetry about God, which is again this idea yes. that we don't, we don't, we can't even talk in prose about God because well, we God be is beyond everything. So the only thing we do, we have is like, I think the, I think the image he uses is like these. I think he uses this like, like bullets of poetry that like punch through oh. our consciousness. Um, and that, that, that's what theopoetics are. This is like there's, there's phrases or there's words that, you know, they arise in a moment. So they're not eternal. 
Right. Because poetry can't be. Poetry has to speak to a moment, which we'll get to Andy yeah, here. Andy, we'll get to this here. before we go. Uh, you know, so, <laughs> but this is the problem with poetry, right? Poetry can't be eternal because poetry has to speak to something. Right. It sort of punches through our consciousness. Right. And, and that's where we actually encounter God is in these poetic explosions of, of language right. that capture something about God. And then they fade. And then we have to keep doing it over and over again, which I think is a really interesting right. way to which, think about theology. Absolutely. I find it far more compelling than thinking that I can draw a straight line and that that line will always be there. Mm -hmm. It will always look the same way, that yeah. it won't ever change. I, I just don't find this a convincing way to yeah. do theology or make meaning in the world. Um, and some of that has to do with, I, I mean, analogies of like, you know, where something like beauty, where like beauty doesn't exist for any other function than right. itself to, uh, to be, to make us be in awe of, of it mm -hmm. uh, in all its forms. And I like, it's not, it's not something that's functional. Right. Um, which is why, I mean, again, theopoetics is maybe a good way to think about it. It's an interesting building community. Word, like but also it. concept. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's the, the, po the word of it is neat because it conjures up all these ideas. Yeah. But the concept of, theology, theologos, words about God are trying to encapsulate God yeah. in ways that transcend that particular moment. So if I do theology, I articulate something and then I pass it on. Yes. Theopoetics is, is essentially not acknowledging that that's not possible. All I can do is capture God in this moment with this language for this conversation. And then I need to let it go. Like yep. it's ethereal. Let it be in the world. God isn't but my ability to capture God in language and, and comment um, is temporal and it's, it's finite. And I, I have to say it and I have to uh, well, revel in it and then I just have right. to let it go. So maybe this is the power of the Psalms in that when we come back to them, yeah. they lead us again into moments, the first, like some of the first moments that mm -hmm. a, like a Hebrew shepherd might've had. Or okay, Hebrew, so let's, right? let's talk about Andy's uh, yeah. comment here. So in the comment is, I'm all for deep exploration of Psalms as poetry, but am I wrong in sometimes feeling like they're big chunks that are ellipsis, not very good poems? Um, you know, he, he makes the caveat, maybe the English translations are diminished. But, but I think what's actually interesting is, and he's going to, he's actually followed he's that up with a I comment that's actually going to go to what I would have explained here. To clarify, there's a lot of virtues which I find super powerful. At the same time, there's a lot that are of repetition that feels like it's filler. So here's what I would say about Hebrew poetry. First, translation of Hebrew poetry is extremely difficult yeah. because Hebrew poetry, so we're very used to rhyme in English language in yeah. terms of our poetry. Not always. I mean, we understand good poetry doesn't have to rhyme. Um, but even, even poetry that doesn't rhyme, we understand the rhythm of it, right? Yep. We understand the, the yep. um, pentameter. We understand the sort of the flow. The structure. That there is inherent structure. structure. Yep. Um, that is incredibly hard to translate. Hebrew poetry doesn't have rhyme. It does have a lot of alliteration, alliteration, and has a lot of um, um, language sounds that get repeated. So a line will use similar sounds throughout. It doesn't end on the same rhyming structure. Right. Like in English, we don't care what we say until we get to the end, and we don't care what That's we say until the, yeah. we get to the next thing that rhymes with the end. Right. Hebrew poetry, the whole line will use similar um, sounds, sounds throughout yep. it. So there is there is a sound element like rhyme. There's huge rhythm elements that get very hard to take one language yeah. and keep the rhythm in another language. That's right. So that's part of it. The other thing that Andy's, you know, recognizing here is, is the repetition. And this is where we have to understand um, that different cultures have different rules about poetry. The biggest rule in Hebrew poetry, and I'm going to super oversimplify, yeah. but the biggest thing you need to understand about Hebrew poetry is repetition. So literally... Hebrew pro the the sort of grounding principle. day one principle yeah. that you learn when reading Hebrew poetry is you're going to read one line and then you're going to read the same line again, and that's how Hebrew poetry works. Right. Now those two lines say the same thing. They can either clarify, they can magnify. Yeah. Um, sometimes they will compare, compare or yeah. contrast. Yeah. But essentially, the grounding formula is: I say a thing, then I say it again a different way. Right. So half of Hebrew poetry is filler, Andy. <laughs> but you know, you like it, you literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah But that's, true. that's the structure that they're working from. Um, and sometimes in English, that structure is made quite clear. Sometimes certain translations will try to obscure the structure to make it more interesting to you. Yeah. But there's a good and there's a downside to that, right? The good is 
it might be more engaging to me as an English reader. The downside is I'm actually not understanding the structure of what the writer is trying to do. Right. So when you read Hebrew poetry um, and you read a line and then you read the same thing, um, a good translation, any good English translation will be trying to bring out the nuance in that. So why did I read this twice? Well, think about that. Why did you read it yeah. twice? What is slightly different in the second reading? Yeah. Did it... Uh, was did it say something that was surprising and contradicted the first thing? Yep. Did it um, take a slightly different angle yep. on the same thing? Because yep. that's that's what these authors are doing over and over again, right? And that's what we sort of have to have to recognize. So you're totally right, Andy, that it is super repetitive and it feels like filler. Um, but again, what is good poetry? I was just going to say. So then to, to and, and you probably heard me say this more than once, but I said it again on Sunday, like then I think one of the things that strikes us is if you read it aloud. Right. When, when you're reading these things to yourself, or, or I would just, we have this sort of practice of Christian spirituality, Lectio, so like repeated, yeah. slow, contemplative reading. And I find that like, it's far less annoying if I'm not trying to figure out what it's trying, hmm. like I, if I'm not trying to get to the end of a line and going, what, you know, well, what's there? Instead, enunciate say the words mm -hmm. and and as you do anytime when um like I, I do this often with my youngest daughter i'll say nora I'll, like i'll tell her that i love her yeah and she appears to be distracted a lot of the time <laughs> so then i'll say nora don't forget and i'll say it again and it's that sort of second yeah come around that always gets her and uh, I think that's actually, again, yeah. maybe what can help us with, again, I just sort of suggested, well, just read it aloud. It doesn't mean mm. we get rid of the filler, but yeah. I think we might, we might find that we read it differently, mm. uh, like less trying to operationalize and get to the bottom of what the poet's getting at. Just, just say it again. Yeah. Say, for the people in yeah. the back, say it again. Now, again, uh, you know, we've already plugged this a few times, but Alter's translation. Yeah. I mean, I think he does, yeah, he does one great. of the best jobs of keeping rhythm in his translation. Yeah, he does. So um, now the rhythms don't always feel supernatural to us, right? We're used to, there's certain rhythms that we're very used to. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's certain things that I understand even in my teaching, like there's rhythms that I use, like I use triplets a lot when I describe things. Right. I like to say this and this and this and this and this or this, you know, and I like to do three because there's just a nice rhythm for it's magical. speakers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, so, he, so some of them don't, you have to read a few times, but he's, he's working really hard to find language yeah. um, that keeps rhythm. And he's, there's myriad points where he's finding ways to keep, um, Again, not rhymes, but same sounding um, vowel structures throughout a line. Yep. And I just, I just find the, um, the amount of um, creativity that he's put. It, I, personally, I love all of Alter's translation. I really like Golden Gate's translation for Old Testament. If people are looking for idiosyncratic translations of the Old Testament. First of all, <laughs> everyone should get David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament. Yes. Um, so check that one out. Golden Gaze translation of the Old Testament. But for the Psalms in particular, Alter, um, I think does a, a really good job. And, and the prophets really. But the prophets and the Psalms, I think Alter just does a fantastic job. Um, yeah, I used it a lot. Did we do Psalms last summer? Yeah. Okay. I used Alter a lot in that yeah. one when I, when yeah. I taught in that. So we're over an hour we, here. Yeah. I was just going to say, we've been so I don't want to go too much longer. Uh, but is there anything else from the message that we, we didn't hit on? No, I don't think so. Um, okay. I, one of the things I was going to mention is that there's actually a whole lot of poetry in the prophetic literature as well. Um, true. another great place to read carefully and, um, yeah, with a with an openness. I, honestly, I think this is one of the reasons why people stay away from that literature in the middle mm -hmm. of the scriptures is because there's a lot of poetic, um, or it's a lot of use uh, for figurative lang language and then language with layers. And mm -hmm. often, if we don't take care, we'll miss it. So yeah, uh, I, no, I'm oh. I'm quite content. It's been great. Well, we're gonna be back. So you know, I mean, the the one big thing you did at the end of the message was. Uh, Isaiah 61, how Jesus reinterprets that yeah, in right. Luke 4. Um, we're going to look at the other side of that, which is Isaiah 63 and how Revelation is reinterpreting that. And that'll be the last one in this series is, um, apocalyptic. Our, yeah, apocalyptic, but really it's about eschatology. So how yeah. does Jesus help us um, understand our imagination for, for 
where the story is going yeah. um, and, and how the story ends. Yeah. Um, and then we'll start our new summer series after that. So It's going to be great. Yeah, it'll be going. Okay. Thanks, awesome. everyone. Uh, appreciate your time tonight. Yeah. And uh, thanks for the comments in there. Uh, oh, one here. Let's see. Oh, it also reminded me of something that made me laugh. How Psalm 139 is so great for kid versus esteem, but then it gets super awkward. <laughs> it does. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's There's so some beautiful. Good. I mean, everybody knows Psalm 139 for that. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, made. together in my mother's womb. Yeah. And then there's, then it, it, and then it goes dark. dark. Yeah. So. Thanks for that, Laura. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Have a great week, everyone. Cheers, we will everybody. see you on Sunday. By the way, if you're interested in joining us in person yeah. on Sunday, we have one service, 10.30 a.m. We're dipping our toes back in, uh, but you do need to register. So head to commons.church. Uh, right on the front page, there's a button to register for services. Or you can go to reopen, commons.church slash reopen to read all of the details for the plan. And so... This is the first week. We're going to uh, be really cautious. We're going to go really slowly, but uh, slowly begin to, to reopen again. Of course, the live stream is now a permanent part of what we're doing at Commons. So that is going to stay. And uh, we know that everyone is going to have uh, different comfort levels in yep. terms of returning. Right. So take your time. Uh, by all means, do not rush back. Uh, we'll be here on Sunday online as well. Awesome. So have a great week. Thanks, Peace. everyone.